Hello friends, and thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. We're currently working through the Gospel of John in our sermon series entitled, That You May Have Life. Our prayer is that this time in God's Word would be edifying for you. God bless. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and take out your Bible and turn to John chapter 20. We're going to look specifically at verses 19 to 23. So John 20, 19 to 23. You may have seen me get up a moment ago and light these candles in front of me. If you're wondering why I did not light two, you're thinking, is there something wrong with this guy? Why did he miss these two candles? The reason why is because the last uh, three weeks, we've been going through and and lighting these candles one by one for each uh, uh, successive Sunday uh, because we are recognizing the season of Advent this year at Spring Hill. If you've never done that and you don't know what that is, Advent literally means, the word literally means... uh, arrival and specifically the arrival of something that's been long anticipated. Now obviously celebrating Christmas and Christmas uh, it, as it happened 2,000 years ago as we talked about earlier this morning that the advent was something that was anticipated for a long time really for all of human history up until the moment that Jesus was born as in very humble means in a very humble way. Uh, and so as they anticipated the very first people that, that witnessed the birth of Jesus they anticipated this advent this arrival of Jesus and then boom suddenly Joy to the world, as we sing, right? Joy to the world stepped into the darkness, and Jesus lit up the light, uh, lit up the world of the darkness, that is, and pointed people to himself from day one. Uh, and we see that in his life and his ministry. And so as we've been lighting these candles, what we're seeing is, that you'll notice that the pink one is next week, and then the, the evening uh, before, uh, the Sunday evening, the 22nd, as we anticipate Christmas, we'll light the one in the middle, and they progressively sort of get lighter. And there's a reason for that. Because on Christmas, what we're celebrating is that the light of the world lit up the darkness. Uh, and so as we kind of begin this morning, I want that to be in your mind. Because no, we're not having a, a, a Christmas message, so to speak. But in reality, every message should be a Christmas message. Because every message is anchored in the good news that Jesus stepped into a dark world to bring people to the light. It's the gospel. And so this morning, we're talking about this Advent thing, the arrival of the sun, joy to the world. You see, the arrival of the resurrected Christ warrants an amplified sort of joy. We're not looking at the birth narrative. We've been looking the last couple of weeks at the resurrection narrative. You talk about joy. That's joy, right? Christmas is a time of joy, but not primarily because of family or food or gifts or even those terrible Hallmark movies. Come on, y'all. Some of you like those things. They're so bad. Okay? We need a reality. We need an intervention for some of you. And I'm kidding. If you want, my mom loves those things. Teach their own, right? I'm about to just go crazy over Star Wars that comes out Thursday. So grace abounds, right? Listen, Christmas is a time of joy, not because of those things. Although those things are wonderful. It's a time of joy because of what we celebrate in the spring. And that's that Jesus vacated the tomb. That's why Christmas is a season of joy because of the resurrection, which we celebrate every first day. Of the week. You see, in this passage we're going to look at this morning, our hearts are confronted with a challenge for gladness and for continuing the mission of Jesus. And that's why I use that phrase, joy to the world. Gladness and a mission to the ends of the earth. A, ma- a message of gladness, of joy. To whom? To the world. What a great phrase to keep in mind as we look at our passage this morning. So let's check it out. John 20. 19 through 23, <clears throat> this is what the Bible tells us from the account of John. John 20, 19 through 23 says this, On the evening of that day, that's resurrection day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, 
Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven, or they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Just a quick word of recap. Like I said, we've been walking through John uh, for a long time, about a year and a half. And so we started at the beginning of John and already see glimpses of Christmas in the beginning of John and glimpses of Easter that, that Jesus is the word of God, right? And so we see good news messages at the very beginning of this book. But even now, we see that we're sort of re-upping on what this good news is all about. Jesus has recently been raised. We looked at that last week. He's the firstborn of the new creation in the place where creation began. The garden, which is where his tomb was, right? He's the re-up, once again, of creation because he is the firstborn of the new creation. As Adam's sin ushered in a curse of separation from God for all men, Jesus is now ushering in rescue for sinners and reconciliation to God for any and all who may believe. From far off to brought near by his blood and by his resurrection. So on this first new day, Jesus has already been at work, right? He appeared to Mary, which we looked at last week. The Synoptic Gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and and Luke, tell us that he appeared to the other women on their way back uh, back to Bethany from the tomb. He's also appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's appeared to Peter. And now he's going to appear to the rest of the disciples. Mine is the odd man out, Thomas, which we'll look at next week. From morning last week to evening now, Jesus has been at work. And so in the text today, by looking at a sort of great commissioning, all right, this is sort of a great commission. It's not the great commission that we see in Matthew 28, but it's certainly a great commission by Jesus. We're going to examine two personal post-resurrection questions for our instruction. And that's going to be our outline today. Personal post-resurrection questions. The first is this. Has cosmic peace brought me daily gladness? Has cosmic peace brought me daily gladness. Now, I phrase that intentionally. The word cosmic means it's grand, okay, universal. Why do I say it that way? Because that's exactly what we have in Jesus. It's a cosmic sort of peace, big time, universal peace. But has it brought me daily gladness? We'll walk through and, and see this. There's something to be learned from the reactions of the witnesses of the resurrection. And you can see that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you certainly see that in the book of John. Last week we saw that in the person of John and in the person of Mary. There's something for us in their responses. We looked at that last week. But there's also something for us here in the response of the ten disciples that are gathered in this locked room. So let's look at it together. Look at the beginning of verse 19. On the evening of that day, again, that's resurrection day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. I'm going to stop there for just a second, okay? Doors were locked where they were for fear of the Jews. Well, we'll keep going for a second. Jesus came and stood among them. Okay, so now we're going to pause. What I want to highlight here is what it says. They're afraid of the Jewish people. That's the religious leaders, the, the Sanhedrin, who just now you know, condemned Jesus to crucifixion, essentially. The Pharisees, who are very much opposed to him. 
The disciples were afraid due to guilt by association with a state criminal. Now remember, Jesus has been condemned not only by Jewish authorities, he's also been condemned by Roman authorities. And so they are guilty, they would say, by association. And now also add to that that Jesus' body is missing. Okay? Not a good situation to be a follower of Jesus, according to the world's terms. They would be a little bit headhunted here. They felt like they had a warrant out for their arrest, and so they weren't ready to exactly go and be social butterflies. Look at the rest of verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now this is meant to be understood as a supernatural appearing that Jesus has done. As I said, the doors were locked. Now whether what that looks like, to be honest, I don't know. Because John tells us hey, the doors were locked and yet Jesus is in front of them. All right. Now I don't know whether Jesus supernaturally passed through physical walls or whether he appeared out of thin air or if he supernaturally unlocked or opened those locked doors. The main thrust, more than any of those things, is that he supernaturally showed himself to his disciples. Jesus is God. All right, we've seen that all through the book of John. He supernaturally appears to his disciples. Then he gives them this common Jewish greeting, peace be with you. Jews, Orthodox Jews still use this phrase today, shalom aleichem, peace be with you. While gesturing to his body, he points to his hands and he points to his side. By the way, anybody that was crucified, those two other guys, if they were ever resurrected somehow, they could point to their hands, but only Jesus could point to the side. Jesus is confirming, listen, I'm God and I'm not dead. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dead here. I'm here before you. And look, you can see it in my hands and in my side. A miracle has occurred. Verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then look at this. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, a Jewish person, a typical Jewish person, whether um, you know the immediate people that this is happening to, being the disciples or the first readers of this, a typical Jewish person would have uh, at first heard this uh, greeting and at first hearing thought nothing of the greeting. Because like I said, Shalom Aleichem is, is no big deal. It's peace be with you. They say that all the time. They say, peace be with you. And they would say, and also with you, right? This is not some uncommon greeting that is being said. But it's then repeated in verse 21. And then it's repeated again with Thomas in verse 26. Now, if you are someone that is not really familiar with reading your Bible and understanding exactly what's going on, hear me say this. Repetition almost always is there for emphasis. Repetition is almost always there for emphasis. And I think it's there in this passage for emphasis. The reflective hearer or reader may recall that Jesus had assured his disciples before the cross that peace was coming. Peace was coming. This is no mere greeting. More is happening here. John 16, 33, in the same book, Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And he was about to, wasn't he? He was about to do this. Not peace with men. When Jesus says, peace be with you, there's more going on here. Certainly these men didn't have peace, right? They didn't have peace. They were headhunted right now. They certainly didn't have peace with the Jewish authorities. Historical tradition tells us that all but one of these men that is hearing this statement, looking at the resurrected Jesus, would be martyred. Does that sound like peace? doesn't sound like peace is with them. But Jesus is speaking much greater than peace with men. 
The emphasis and the reminder that Jesus brings peace to his disciples is a declaration that though they are still in peril by his wounds, he has brought cosmic peace from cosmic criminals against a holy God. These guys did not have peace before Jesus was crucified. They stood at enmity with a holy God, sinners, criminals, cosmic criminals, just like you and I when we come into this world. But by the blood of Jesus, peace is with us. I believe that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Peace be with you. You see, Jesus' statement is the complement of one of the very last things that he said before he perished and died. And that was, it is finished. It is finished. And now, peace be with you. Isn't that good news? The peace of reconciliation to and life with God are now completed in his resurrection. And this is the gospel good news for us. That we have gone from being cosmic criminals to cosmic peace by the blood of the Lamb. If you're looking for the gospel message in today's message, boom, there it is. That's the good news, isn't it? That we come into this world cosmically opposed to the Holy God. But by the blood of Jesus, we too may have peace with us. And that's what we see being happening here. Jesus is not merely saying, sup fellas. He's telling them, I have purchased you peace. Now let's learn from their reaction to this declaration, despite their perilous conditions, their perilous circumstances. What verse 20 tells us is the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Gladness. You know, when you receive good news, the natural reaction is gladness. You can't even help it. When you receive good news, the natural response is gladness. If you find 20 bucks on the sidewalk, naturally, you look at that and you think, there's 20 bucks. No. You're glad. You pick up that 20 bucks and you're like, oh, this is good. You didn't have to tell yourself, I should respond positively to this information. No, it's natural, right? You get a good grade in class. You're excited about that. You're glad. Why? Because you respond naturally to good news. You get a raise or a promotion. Gladness. You don't have to think to yourself, is this a good thing? Hmm. I should be glad about this. No. Gladness is the natural reaction to good news. When the doctor says cancer is in remission, gladness. It's natural. You don't think to yourself, this is a positive situation. I should be glad about this. Let me smile. No, it's ridiculous, isn't it? We know that positive news brings gladness. It's natural. Church, gladness is the natural response to good news. And church, hear me say this. Christians have more reason than anyone to be marked by a permanent state of gladness. You have a greater reason than a millionaire to be marked by a permanent state of gladness. Now let's be realistic for a second. There have been and there will be brutal days behind and ahead. Days where gladness may feel far from you. Let's be realistic here. Some of you guys may be going through seasonal depression right now. I get it. Gladness may be far from you at times. I understand that. The disciples knew that. They knew the pain of bad circumstances. They knew the the pain of terrible emotion. They would be headhunted. But if your joy is not brought by your circumstances, then your circumstances, hear me say this, they can't tarnish your joy. If your circumstances aren't the things that bring you joy, then your circumstances certainly can't take away and tarnish your joy. You see, your joy... Your gladness isn't based on your bank account, on your relationship status. It's not based on how people have been treating you, how you've been treating yourself. It's not based on how well you've held up against temptation this week or today or in the last hour. 
Your joy is based on the imperishable, undefiled truth that you were once far off, dead in your trespasses and sins, but you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That's untouchable gladness. It's not touchable, imperishable. Don't be the Christian with a constant scowl on your face that doesn't seem approachable. What a farce that is. You have a greater reason than anyone to be marked by a permanent state of gladness. Don't have a scowl on your face. Joy is found in the Lord. Sing songs with gladness. Pray with gladness. Read your Bible with gladness. Speak to others with gladness. Listen with gladness. Parent your children with gladness. Love your spouse and serve her, him with gladness. Give your time, give your money with gladness. Encourage other people with gladness. Hear me say this, folks. Gladness, because of the work of Jesus, it is your new DNA. It's who you are. Because peace is with you through Jesus. Peace be with you. Gladness. Second question. Personal post-resurrection questions. Number two, am I plugged in to my missional power source? Am I plugged in <clears throat> to my missional power source? Now, we got to keep moving here, right? Because it doesn't just stop with the gladness of the disciples. The very next thing that we see Jesus do is that he commissions them. Now, while this isn't the great commission in Matthew 28, it is a great commission, isn't it? The very next thing that he does. Yeah, you're glad. Now, here's the thing. Go and be plugged into powerful work. Go be missional. Go accomplish the work that I have set out to accomplish. See, the sent one named Jesus has become the sender as he commissions his disciples out to continue his mission. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You see, guys, Jesus was well equipped for such a lofty mission. You think, well, yeah, he's Jesus, right? He's the God-man. But his disciples had proven their weakness. They'd betrayed him. They'd scattered when he was crucified and arrested. How could Jesus then call these guys to be continuing his mission? The answer is very simple. Because he's the one that gave them power. He's the one that gives them the power to do it. You're right, they're weak. But he empowers them. Verse 22, and when he had said this, check this out, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is a very strange thing that happens, right? And if you have zero biblical literacy, you read that you're like, why is he breathing on people? That's weird. Breast stinks probably, you know, he's just been dead for three days. It's a joke. Okay. I'm just kidding. Loosen up. No, this happens. Jesus breathes on these guys, and it's this this big occasion. That's it's really strange to read this, but I want to explain what this means, and also what this does not mean. Maybe more importantly, it's a strange occurrence. I want to explain this for just a moment. First of all, I want you to, I want to make this clear. This is not Pentecost. Okay, if you don't know what Pentecost is, this is the moment when in Acts chapter two, when Jesus's disciples are gathered together, and Jesus is absent. By the way, he's already ascended to the throne of God. And this mighty rushing wind goes into their presence and they begin speaking different languages. All these witnesses are around and they're like, why are they speaking different languages? They don't know those languages. Something amazing just happened, right? Something, something miraculous just occurred. And that's Pentecost because what happened is that that mighty rushing wind was the spirit of God coming to possess God's people and empowering them. This is not that occurrence. For one thing, Jesus is still with them, right? 
Pentecost happened much later, several days later. So this is not the moment the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit to the fullest degree as we are today. So it may have been a couple of things. Okay, First of all, it may be that they receive a small dose of the power upon them, the power of God. And Jesus is saying, taste for now, but you will be given in full later. It's possible that that's the case personally. And just because there's some debate here, I don't think that that's what's going on. Although it may be, it's not really the point of the passage. The other thing that could be happening, and I'm going to argue this, is that this was simply a sign of what was to come. Now what we see in, in verse 22, it says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now there's no reason to think that receive the Holy Spirit is a command to be accomplished immediately. I'm going to give you an example of what I mean by that. Just because Jesus is saying receive the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that he's saying receive it right now. There's a few examples of this. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he's talking to his father and he says, Father, now glorify me in your own presence. That doesn't happen immediately. He's not glorified until the next day, right? So it's not an immediate thing that occurs. Chapter 13, verse 31, after Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, he's being glorified in the next few hours. Okay, This doesn't happen immediately, but he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Well, no, not really, because Jesus wasn't glorified at that moment. It was going to happen later on. But Jesus said now. And maybe the best way that this is illustrated is that when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet in chapter 13, at a simple level, it's just a foot washing. But a sign level, as a foretaste level, it points forward to the spiritual washing that's achieved by the blood of the Lamb, whose death takes away the sins of the world. Jesus says, I'm making you clean. But he's really not. He's not making them clean until the next day when he goes and is crucified, and then three days later is resurrected. And so just because Jesus has received the Holy Spirit, it doesn't necessarily mean that he means it's happening right that second. I think of this breathing is sort of an acting and foreshadowing parable pointing forward to Pentecost that was to come later. Ultimately, it doesn't matter, though, because it doesn't impact the point of the passage. Whether this is a foretaste of the Spirit that they have now, or if it's just a metaphor of what's to come, it really doesn't matter. It could be either one. Whether now or later, the point is that followers of Jesus are called to continue the mission of Jesus, but not by their own power. That's the point of the passage. Not by their power, but by the power of God. For he is the only way you and I can accomplish the mission of proclaiming the gospel. And that's what we see next in verse 23. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Again, based, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them because of this power. He says, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, this is another very weird verse. You may read it and think, that sounds like I'm like a supernatural being or something. What exactly is going on here? Well, what this says is in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. What that means is that if you forgive the sins of any, they stand forgiven. Now, we're not going to get into the English syntax or anything like that. What I want you to understand is that this is a passive voice statement, meaning it's something that's happening to them, not something the disciples are accomplishing. The disciples are not the ones that give them the taste of forgiveness, even though they sort of are at the same time. This passage is not saying that Christians have authority to forgive or not forgive people, thus saving them from their sin. Rather, what's being said here is that the gist is that in a sense, we have the keys to the kingdom. We have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Like Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, that because the gospel message is the key to the kingdom of God, we have a very big responsibility, don't we? We have the keys to the kingdom of God. 
We aren't the ones who grant someone forgiveness, but unless we preach forgiveness of sins, people will not be forgiven. We have a lofty task at hand here. No one may enter unless he or she trusts Christ through the gospel message. A verse that very well typifies this is Romans 10, 14. And you know this verse probably. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? We have the keys. It's a mandated instruction. I'm going to paraphrase it this way. If you want people to believe, go see about it that it's done. I'll illustrate it like this. You you have, in the gospel message, you have the keys to God's house. You have the keys to his house, and it's locked. But you have the keys to his house. The door is locked. The windows are shut. There's no way in. But you have the keys. And it remains locked without the keys. But having the keys and you opening the door, check us out, that doesn't guarantee that whoever you give those keys and open that door for is going to walk through. It doesn't guarantee that. But I can guarantee you this. If you don't turn the key, there's no way that they're going to enter. Right? We have a lofty uh, privilege, honor, mandate. My paraphrase of verse 23 is this. If you withhold the gospel, that person won't be led to Christ, at least not by you. But you have the key. Give it a turn and see what God does. That's what's happening here. You got the key. You can't make them walk through. But give it a turn. Open the door and see what God accomplishes. You see, the purpose of this commissioning of Jesus is that we have an impossible mission. But we have a powerful aid that makes the impossible look like child's play. That's the Spirit of God. This is an impossible mission for you and I. But we have a capable power that is aiding us constantly. Jesus' mission was to fight sin, to care for the hurting, and to evangelize a lost and dying world. You know, there have been, I've been here a little over three years, and even before that, doing ministry with, with uh, young people. I can personally testify and have heard from countless brothers and sisters that they are in inner anguish and pain because sin has viciously ensnared them. And they may think, I don't talk to, talk to people about Jesus like I should. I don't live evangelistically as I'd like to. And when I ask how their personal time with the Lord is, guess what? It's barren. It's barren. They struggle mightily with sin. They struggle mightily to be faithful and obedient. And I say, well, how's your time with the Lord? And it's barren. It's weak. Folks, you would be a fool to take up the fight without being near the source of power. What do you expect to happen? What do you expect? Ephesians 6 says that you have daily flaming darts headed your way, and your Bible and the Spirit's equipping are compared to a helmet, to a breastplate, and to a sword, among other things. You would be dumbfounded to hear that our nation's army rushed into battle without being properly equipped with armor, so to speak, with weaponry, with tactics. If our army, our United States army, rushed into battle without those things, you would think, what a bunch of dummies. How do they expect to be victorious against the onslaught of the enemy if they're not equipped for this battle? We scoff at that possibility, but we do that every day. How foolish of us to rush into battle without feeling equipped for the battle. We rise each morning and we go out naked 
under an onslaught of flaming darts from the evil one. So what do we do about it? What should we do about this? It's simple. For one thing, we can schedule time to become equipped daily. Be intentional about it. You intentionally get ready for work. You intentionally wear a certain thing each day. You intentionally brush your teeth so you don't get cavities. You intentionally sleep enough so you're not a zombie the next day. You prepare yourself for every day, every day. And yet the most important part of the day oftentimes just goes totally unprepared. Isn't that strange? It's a signal of disbelief, isn't it? That if we really believed that we needed to be equipped for the battle every day, wouldn't we prepare for the battle? If you really believe that you smell bad, you're going to take a shower because that's the reality, isn't it? If you believe that you are under an onslaught of attack, of temptation every day, you will prepare yourself for battle. But the reality is that we don't. Schedule time for it. Schedule time for prayer. Schedule time to be in the Word of God. Hear this, dads and moms. Pray for your children. Pray for your children. Check this out. They're under the same attack that you are every day. Pray for your kids. Pray with your kids. What a great way to to shepherd them and disciple them. Set evangelistic goals. Maybe just aim at one person per week, one person per month. I'm going to have one conversation with someone that I just want. They may be a believer. I don't know. But I want to have one conversation a week or a month even that says, I'm going to be intentional to share the gospel with that person in some way. And don't just leave it at that. But I'm going to be intentional to pray for them also. In verse 23, Jesus is calling his disciples to take the gospel keys, so to speak, and unlock the door, not force people through the doorway. I think that part of the reason that, we be, that we're so nervous and hesitant about being evangelistic is that we fear that we don't have the right things to say or don't know the answers to all the questions or whatever the case may be. Can you just hear me say this for a moment? Success in evangelism is not based on uh, results. It's based on faithfulness. Success is based on faithfulness, not based on results. Rather than that, rest in God's power to save, not in your ability to speak and persuade. You think that a bunch of ragged fishermen were trained missionaries? They changed the world. You know your Bible probably a lot better than they did. Trust God. And go be faithful. And I'll close today with this. <clears throat> Just to tie in these two things. Cosmic peace, peace brought me daily gladness. Am I plugged into my missional power source? I think that a good way for us to close this morning is to commit to gladness. Commit to gladness today. Don't just sing joy to the world. Commit to gladness. But hear this, folks. Listen. Commit to gladness based not on the ebb and flow of life. Because it will ebb and flow, won't it? but commit to gladness based on the undefiled joy of being brought near to God. I'll say this again. You have better reason than anyone in the world to be marked by a permanent state of gladness. Life will ebb and flow. Don't let your joy. Don't give your circumstances that much power because Jesus has got all the greater power. Let's pray. 
We want to thank you for listening to this week's sermon. For more information, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Spring Hill Baptist. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus and loving above all else.